morning we're going to be in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. So if you have a copy of the scriptures with you this morning, I'm going to ask that you turn there with us. If you didn't bring one, but you do want to use a hard copy, you should be able to find one under a seat close to you. And if you don't own a copy of the Bible, we're just going to invite you to keep that one as a gift from us so that you have access to that at your home. Again, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. So if you're able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning. My name is Cord. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. I want to welcome you here, and I want to say if it's your first time with us, I just want to say thanks. Uh, Thanks for joining us. Thanks for making us a part of your week. Hopefully someone has already grabbed you and shared with you a little bit about who we are and what we long to do here in our community. We'd love for you to connect. There should be a connect card in one of the seatbacks in front of you. Just let us know you're here. Um, like Lauren said, we're in a sermon series uh, working through the book of 1 John, discussing the topics of Christian assurance and the nature of the Christian life together. Uh, last week, Eric taught us through 1 John chapter 2, and we talked about how the Word of God is both the foundation and the fuel for love for one another. One of the themes that we find in the book of 1 John is love, particularly that we ought to love God and love one another, and that those two are inextricably linked. And so John kind of kicked us off last week with that by saying that we ought to love one another, and that if we hate our brother and we say that we love God, the truth isn't in us. And so Eric talked about how the word of God stands as a foundation and fuel for that. This morning, I've got a real chipper sermon for you. Uh, we're going to be talking about, yeah, we're going to be talking about the topic of loving the world. Uh, and so we're going to hopefully define the world. What is the world? I think that's important. Talk about how the world works, how we should view it and how we should fight against a love for the world. Now, if you're, uh, have spent any time at all in the church, if you're a Christian and you've kind of th- uh, heard the gospel either preached or taught, you're probably wondering maybe why in the world no pun intended, would we say that we need to not love the world? Isn't that the whole idea of the gospel, right? Is that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? Whosoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. The very uh, heart of the Christian faith is that our God loved the world so much he sent his son. And so I want to start by saying we, uh, there are at least, some commentators disagree with this, uh, There are at least two different ways in which the New Testament talks about the world, as many as seven different ways, depending upon who you read. I'm just going to focus on the two. There's the world in the positive sense, and there's the world in the negative sense. The world in the positive sense would be uh, all of God's uh, creatures that he's created, all human beings that have ever been uh, created by God, that have been born on the earth. That's the idea of the world that God loves and loved so much that he would send Jesus. Then there's the world in the negative sense, which is used very regularly throughout the New Testament. And that world in the negative sense is actually talking not about, a peop- not about people and not about things, but a system, a very system and a way of living that is an open rebellion against God. When John talks about the world, he's talking about a system that's being ruled by a little g God, 
and that this system is an open rebellion against God ever since sin entered the world. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. As I said, it's going to be chipper, and then we're going to get hopefully to the good news of Jesus and the gospel. So before I do that, though, let's do what we ought to always do, which is ask God for the help that we all need because there's no hope for us unless the Holy Spirit graciously opens the eyes of our hearts and we're able to hear the truth, respond to the truth, uh, because my best efforts aren't going to be enough this morning. <laughs> so if you'll bow your heads with me, let's pray. God, first, we just want to thank you that we can sit where we are right now in great peace because you're a gracious God. Thank you that we get to open your word freely, sing and worship freely. And it's all because you have graciously given us that gift. And we ask now, Holy Spirit, would you open the eyes of our hearts to see the truth of your word for what it is? If there are moments where we need to feel conviction, would you help us to feel that conviction without feeling like victims? God, if there's areas where we need to feel encouragement, would you help us to feel encouraged without being licensed to sin? God, if there's areas where we need to be admonished, would you help to admonish us? And most of all, my God, would you help us to love you and love others? And to leave here with that passion at the forefront. Give us a vision for the kingdom, God, as you would have it. And help us to fend off the attacks that come our way to try and love the world more than we love you. We trust you, Lord, and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to start by saying I... Uh, did not, I've mentioned this before, because I didn't grow up as a Christian doesn't mean I did not have experience in student ministry at times and being invited to youth things. In my experience, being young and going to youth camps or youth events uh, surrounded some kind of odd uh, rituals that we would do. One of those was, I remember going to a youth camp where we burned Metallica CDs. Anybody ever a part of this? Maybe it's just me. But you had like a youth camp, and, and it talked a lot about, now there was a reason behind this, it talked about worldliness. And so that worldliness kind of got around to the Black Album Metallica, uh, you know, and other songs. And we ended up having this big fire. Then there was pictures taken of the smoke. It's like, look, there's a demon coming out of it. I knew the world was in there, you know. Um, and, and I remember at the time, I, I was like, oh, I see some merit in this. And then looking back, like not too far after, I thought, that was so quirky. That's so weird, because I love Metallica. And... And so I, rem I remember that distinctly, and I wanted to start here because there, there have been times throughout Christian history and, and the history of the world, but also really close and near, I think, to our day and age, where because we've trivialized what we call worldly, it has in many ways made us overreact and say that nothing's worldly, which is really dangerous too. And so this morning, I want to... I wanna Shine some light on this text, which talks about not loving the world. And I want to say, I'm not under the framework that every single thing uh, that ever comes from culture is worldly and then there sh therefore should be abstained from. Okay, I, that's why I wanted to start there. However, I think that in many ways we've overcorrected and we're, very, we're much more receptive to things without even questioning. And so because of that, there can be a lot of spiritual ramifications. But before I get into that, I think it's important that I say, what is the world as defined in the scriptures here? So I wrote in my first point, which was the world is a deceptive system of sin and death. That sounds intense, but I want to read a quote from a guy named David Wells, and he says it like this, and it should be kicked up on the screen. 
He says, the world is the system of values in any given age, which has at its center our fallen human perspective, which displaces God and his truth from the world, and which makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. This gives the great plausibility to what is morally wrong, and for that reason, it makes what is wrong seem normal. Okay. Highlighting here, it's a system that makes what's right seem strange. Righteousness makes what's wrong seem normal and ultimately displaces God and his truth and replaces it with you and I and our best efforts and best ideas. Now, the Bible's very clear about this, and I have to be honest from the outset, and I'm, I'm gonna say this because I'm a pastor and I feel obligated to tell the truth. The Bible's really clear that there is a, an actual demonic presence in the world and that there's a head demon who's fallen named Satan that has an influence in the world. The Bible calls him the prince and the power of the air. He calls him the god of this world, right? That this, this demonic presence, this fallen angel, ultimately was kicked out of heaven, highly controversial, but kicked out of heaven. A third of the demons, the angels fell with him, and these third of angels became demons. And that ultimately the system that we live in, the world system that displaces God and offers up another truth, is underneath some semblance of influence and authority from this little G God named Satan or Lucifer, a lot of different names in the Bible. Now, I want to make it clear when I say underneath authority, God has ultimate authority, has always has ultimate authority, and Jesus on the cross makes it abundantly clear by shaming those authorities and then offering us authority as well alongside him. Now, nonetheless, in this system, Satan has a way to influence and to rule. So what does Satan do? It might, might be important for us to know more about Satan. Here's a few things. These are just honestly like popcorn reading. I could, give, I could talk all day about this, but what the Bible says, because there's so many scriptures for it. Here's a few things. Satan is the father of lies. He lies. Jesus said the reason that Satan lies is because he speaks of his own character. He's the father of all lies. He's an accuser. He opposes God. He's proud. There's five times in the book of Ezekiel when it, says, when it talks about Satan's fall that he says, I will ascend to the heavens. I will exalt myself. I will, I will, I will. This is what Satan does. He loves himself and he's proud. He deceives, he distorts, he perverts. He ultimately, his desire is to kill and to destroy. This is what Jesus says. He says, the thief, the enemy comes to steal, to kill and to destroy. That's his bottom baseline. Why is that? Well, the Proverbs in chapter eight, verse 36 says, anyone who hates God loves death. Satan hates God, and therefore, by nature, he loves death. And because he loves death, he loves to encourage people to die. He, loves for, he wants for you to die, for me to die. It doesn't matter if it's a slow death or a quick death. The ultimate end goal is death. I always try, when I do pastoral counseling and people start talking to me about suicidal thoughts, I always go here. I believe suicidal thoughts are, at the very core, the most demonic thing that happened to human beings because it's about death. It's about you killing yourself. It's you're the image bearer of God. doesn't matter if you're a Christian in the room or you're a non-Christian in the room. Guess what? You are made in the image of God. Do you know why you might be feeling these uh, proclivities to want to harm yourself? It's because Satan loves death and hates you and hates God, and that's the aim. And so he has a way about leading and building out a system called the world. And when we think through the world, we got to think through the system that we live in, our world Really, Satan usually does it in three ways. He offers false teaching, he lures us to false affections, and he encourages a false lifestyle. I'll say that again. 
Satan loves false teaching. It's one of the first things that happens in the early church is he starts sending in his false teachers. So Jesus ascends into heaven. He gives the disciples the true, pure gospel. Satan immediately starts to infiltrate that with his own false teachers. Some of the early, uh, early church uh, fathers would say, where, where uh, Jesus has planted a church, Satan has planted a chapel. He's always longing to find his way to basically combat the truth. So he encourages false teaching. Have you ever thought how quickly in the life of the church, every letter almost that's written from Paul or from the early church disciples addresses false teaching? Why? How quickly did that happen? Because the enemy has been a counter preacher since the very beginning. God said, here's my one command. Genesis 3, Satan says, did God really say? He's a counter preacher has always been this way. It's always the way he works. It's why at Providence, we care deeply about doctrine. It's not because we want to be stodgy. It's not because we want to be smug. It's not because we think we know everything. It's because the very few things that God has given us to know that are important, it's important we guard them because Satan's a false teacher and he always looks to sow seeds of false teaching. Why? So that he can, in the end, get at our affections. When he teaches false teaching, he goes after your heart. He doesn't want you to love God and to love people. He wants you to love self and ultimately to use people. That's the goal, false affections. It's, I think the primary goal is not for you to know that you're loving yourself and that you're using people, but that for you to believe that ultimately you're a good person and that you love God, whatever God that is, and that you really do love people, but ultimately they just get on your nerves. And so using them isn't a big deal because they frustrate me, right? That's the goal. And finally, I think particularly for Christians, you need to listen to this, hypocrisy is his main goal. Live a false lifestyle. It's what John's at, it's what he's aiming at here. He doesn't want us to continue parading as though we know Jesus if our lifestyles are false because that's the enemy's goal. And the enemy does it in the world in a number of ways. He encourages uh, self-efficiency so that you don't feel like you need God. He hardens us toward God and others through various ways. He trivializes relationships and intimacy. I hope that as you're listening to this, you're thinking through news articles, magazines, TV shows, movies, songs, trivializing intimacy, trivializing sexuality, trivializing relationships, making them not really a big deal, calling things reality TV that aren't reality, and then making them reality, Um, making sin normative, making righteousness strange. That's the goal. And I want you to think through, when you think about the world that we live in, think through let's just talk the main things that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that God really cares about. Things like relationships, things like the sanctity of human life. Just very simply that we should prize human beings' lives. Things like sexuality or how we handle and and deal with our possessions. Money. How about this? different emotions and how God really cares about this kind of stuff. Things like ambition or anxiety and fear or bitterness or gossip or malice or greed or deceit. Think about these. Jesus talks about them in the Sermon on the Mount. Now think about how our culture portrays those things and what is right and what is wrong. Satan being a created angel who pridefully rebelled against God, a lover of death, I want to make abundantly clear sits beneath and under the authority of Almighty God. I think there's a number of ways that Satan uses this small amount of influence and power that he has been given. And the most prominent, way, the most prominent of ways is not always to show up to your house face-to-face and like have a showdown with you. In fact, I would, I would venture to bet that because Satan is not like God in these ways, he's not omnipotent, he's not all-powerful, he's not omniscient, he doesn't know your thoughts, he can't read your mind, 
Uh, he doesn't know everything. And he's also not omnipresent. He, you probably haven't faced down Satan because he can't be everywhere all the time. That doesn't mean you haven't experienced any kind of demonic uh, activity. I, I full well believe that that has happened because I've experienced it. But I would imagine that you probably haven't faced down Satan because he's probably not hanging out at your house or my house. We're just not that big of a deal. Just a guess, okay? But I think that the prominent ways that Satan works in his activity is by setting up a system called the world, and he loves good old-fashioned sin. I call this the ordinary demonic. It's just the ordinary work of Satan. There is the extraordinary that does happen. I think those guns come out only usually when he needs to. Just like any good general that's fighting, I don't think he wastes bullets. I think that most often we're like fish. We think we're going to feast. We bite the hook, and then we get feasted on. And very simply, we lose that battle. As a pastor uh, in a commentary on 1 John, I don't have the quote behind me, so you're going to have to perk your ears up. Listen to what he says about what John's saying here. He says, John describes worldliness as the cravings of our sinful flesh, the lust of our eyes, and the arrogant pride that causes us to boast in ourselves without ever thanking God. Now listen. In our age, filled with advertising, rock stars, supermodels, celebrities, reality TV, it's not an overstatement to say that if worldliness means living only to please our flesh and pursue what our eyes lust after so that we can arrogantly boast about our conquest and accomplishment, then worldliness is just really a synonym for America. Close quote. That's intense and true. If we're just saying, taking what worldliness is in the Bible, and then you look at our culture, you'll see that makes a lot of sense. It's what we're constantly encouraged with. He goes on to say, therefore, John reminds us the world's going to burn up in the end, but if we belong to God, we'll live forever with him, and we must remain ever vigilant to love God and not the world, close quote. Our entire nation can be used as a synonym for worldliness. So how should the Christian interact with that? Well, here's what I'll say. And this is the reason I started where I started. I think that there are overreactions and I think that there are underreactions. I think the Christian needs to have a healthy biblical worldview. One example would be syncretists fall into, the loving, fall into loving the world because they underestimate the evil that is in the world. A syncretist is simply this. Because we need to reach the world, we need to be just like the world, and we need to be among the world, and they end up compromising and looking just like the world, living hypocritical false lifestyles. And therefore, they underestimate that the world and the system itself is both powerful and evil, and they don't get that you cannot fight the gates of hell with a water pistol. So syncretists end up looking a lot like the world. They don't end up having a light to shine. Or on the flip side, sectarians, they fall into self-righteousness. Why? Because they think they can build up enough walls. We can move out into the country. We can build, we can have a farm, organic food. We don't have to get the GMOs in it. We'll homeschool the kids. It'll be fine. We won't have the big bad world getting in us. And what they underestimate is the evil and sin in their own hearts. They underestimate the flesh. Because you know what would happen if you built walls and did all that stuff? You would corrode from the inside because guess where evil also resides? You. Your flesh will still come after you. Your flesh will still look to own you. Now, Christian, I want to encourage you. I don't believe that you any longer have to deal with that sin nature like a non-Christian does because you have a new nature given to you by Christ. And so the flesh can try and own you, but it doesn't own you anymore. You're no longer a slave to it. But I just say sectarians underestimate just how powerful the sin of their own hearts are. And I think Christians, we have a middle ground here. We have eyes that are open to evil both within us and without us. 
And we can engage both with the gospel. Jesus says you are in the world, but not of the world. I have not called to take you out of the world, but that you might be in the world and engaging it with the gospel. That's who we are. A couple of principles, and I'll move on to point number two, which means that we might think of receiving what is good, rejecting what is evil, and redeeming what is meant for good, but that is now being used for evil. I'll say that again. We should receive what is good, reject what is evil, and redeem what is meant for good, but is now being used for evil. That's how we ought to operate in the world. If you drove here in a car, it's because you didn't reject what was good. A car can be good, right? That's a good gift. Glad we're not walking. Glad we didn't have to ride up on horseback here. That's a good cultural offer from the world system. I actually like that. If you flew on a plane somewhere to go do business, probably a good thing. Probably arguable with climate change climatologists, but we can go to that another day at another time. Nonetheless, probably a good thing that we ought to be able to receive. Then there's things that are just evil, absolute trash that come from culture. The idea that, you know, killing or harming a human being is okay at any stage of its life. I think that that should be rejected altogether. And then there's things that we ought to maybe redeem because it was meant for good and the world has changed it to evil. These are things like sexuality. I think sometimes the church, we become way too averse to sexuality. We don't want to talk about it. Uh, It's all bad. And rather, we should have a biblical worldview, which is how it was given to us by God. Yes, the world's perverted it. We should now redeem that for good and for marital union and intimacy and all the things that God created it for. Okay. Light went out. Light's going out. Point number two. The world overpromises and underdelivers. So 1 John chapter 2 starting in verse 15, and I'll just read 15 and 16. Don't love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, listen to this, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. John says it like this. He sums up the entire world system in three different ways. Desire of the flesh, our appetites, the desire of our eyes, our affections, and the pride of life, our ambitions. I'll say it again. The desire of our flesh, our appetites, the desire of our eyes, our affections, and the pride of life, our ambitions. One uh, commentator uses the analogy of if Satan is uh, ultimately hunting or fishing for us, that you could see it like this. The the flesh, our flesh is the hook and the world is the bait, and ultimately he has no problem switching the bait as long as he finds whatever can get us hooked. And so the world is a system that just keeps kind of changing bait and we find our, he will find a way to hook us. So if you think through the desires of the flesh, eyes, and pride of life, you could think of it like this. The hook is our flesh and Satan will say, perhaps it's their appetites that I can go after. What do they crave at a base level? It doesn't matter if it's gluttony. It doesn't matter if it's sexual perversion. Just put it on the hook, see if you bite. Doesn't work? No problem, we can switch that. Maybe it's the desires of the eyes causing you to want to covet possessions and things more than you actually love God. Doesn't work? No problem. We can switch that with the prides and ambitions of life. Maybe it's success at your job that overall takes your life and ends up killing you, whether physically because you have a heart attack or it kills you because you're never actually with your family and caring for your family and loving your wife and loving your kids. If you bite, sounds good. But he'll switch the bait as long as you take it. He's good. He's on the long-term plan of killing you. That's the idea. Your flesh is the hook, the world is the bait, and he puts it out. Now, what I want to say is the reason I think, I do believe in the extraordinary demonic, but the reason I think we don't experience that as much, perhaps one reason might be because we are very easily trapped by just simply the flesh in the world. And if you've ever been a fisherman, how many of you know what a trot line is? Anybody? 
Okay, if you fish, you know what I mean. A trot line, for those of you who don't know, is simply a line that you put out into the water, you put bait on it, and you drive off on your boat, and you come back and check it later. You don't actually have to be actively involved because the fish will bite on its own. You can go actively pursue other things. I think that happens oftentimes. The, hook, the, the, the bait is on the hook, and we just, we just fall right into the trap. So it's not really necessary for there to ever be a tipping of the hand for any kind of extraordinary demonic because we fall very neatly into the ordinary demonic, and we just fall in line. This is classic teaching from the Reformation, the flesh, the world, and Satan. This is what constantly battles against us. Again, what's the end goal? The end goal is always death. It's destruction. And because God is the God of life, the goal is death. And our flesh is a killing device brought alive by our sin. And I just want to encourage you, Christian, this is why it's so important to embrace what Paul taught us in Romans, that by the grace of Jesus, you are no longer enslaved to your flesh. So you don't have to bite You don't have to give in to your flesh. You don't have to give the enemy a foothold in your life. You don't actually have to bite. The world being a system of interchangeable bait doesn't mean that we necessarily have to buy it hook, line, and sinker. This is the way it looks. We see something, we crave something, we indulge in something, and then we brag about or boast about what we've indulged in. Or if you're a Christian, perhaps you hide in shame and run away from what you've done. Ambitions could be anything from familial pride Look at my family that I came from. This, is, this was pretty common, like in the old country, right? Particularly the aristocratic families. This is my family name, my family crest. Pride and possessions, here's an American treasure. This is a great American pastime. Look at all that I've done. Look at all that I own. Look at all that I have. Look at my nice house. Uh, pride in relationships, who you know. Another one that comes up often for us. Uh, this can be easy in the social media culture. Look who follows me. Look who I follow. These are pictures with you and celebrities, pictures with you and higher-ups. Look who I hobnob with. Look who I rub shoulders with. Uh, pride and pedigree. Look what I do. I'm a VP of this. I'm a VP of that. I have this job or that job. Loving that. Pride and power. This one's really, really sadistic, but really, really common. Look who I can control. Even brag to your friends. Yeah, I have this one friend, but she'll do whatever I tell her to do. I mean, I really got it wrapped around my finger. Watch this. Pride that you can control people. It even happens with spouses. <laughs> yeah, my spouse does whatever I tell them. It's like, oh, hey, man, it's crazy that you're here. Like, isn't your wife pregnant? I mean, how, how she, she doesn't mind that you're here? Oh, she does whatever I tell her. Oh, okay, good. Glad that you're happy about that. Pride with who you control. And Satan loves this, right, because he's the, he's the father of all pride, so he just loves it whenever you boast. He encourages it. Some of us, were religious boasters. All that you know, all the Bible you know, all the scriptures that you know, all the theology that you know, look at me. Here's all things that I, and, and Satan loves it, just drinks it all in. Doesn't matter if you're boasting about what you know about God, boasting about who you are in God, or boasting about all the things in the world that you're buying into. He loves the pride because he knows that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Maybe it's your affections. If the eyes are the window to the mind and the soul, Ultimately, what we see causes us to covet. We see something that's not ours, we long for it. This could be somebody else's spouse, or this could be somebody else's car, or this could just be glitz and glam of our culture. It's why advertising works. If you don't think advertising works, it would have already been demolished. It, the reason the ads exist is because they do work, because we see it, we want it, we have to have it. And lastly, our appetites, our cravings. This can be sexual, this can be physical. Ultimately, it doesn't matter if it leads to adultery, if it leads to gluttony. Again, he's on the end game, the long game. It's just really about death. 
Think of our first parents, Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis chapter three. It says this, this is the succession in terms of Eve. When she saw that the fruit was a delight to the eyes, lust of the eyes, and that it was good for food, lust of the flesh, and could make one wise, the pride of life, then she ate and gave to her husband. This has always been the system that he follows. It's because it's successful. He's been very good at it for a long time, and it's the world that we live in. Now, just as a side note, I don't have tons of time to walk through this, but what are some of the ways that Christians can combat this? Well, just remember, Jesus constantly addresses these things by encouraging us to not don't eat because we're craving, we're hungry. He doesn't say, oh, you should just fast and not eat. He says, taste and see that the Lord is good. John chapter six, this may seem intense. Eat my flesh and drink my blood, right? What's he really after here? Cannibalism? No, it's what we're gonna celebrate later on here. It's there's a feast to be had in the bounty of Christ. He says, come and be satisfied here rather than taking hook, line, and sinker, the, the offer of a feast from the world that really is about you getting feasted on. How many of you have experienced this in your life? I'm not saying anything that should shock you. You thought that something that you did or something you engaged in would bring you life and it ended up killing you. It ended up eating you up inside. You, couldn't, you didn't want to tell anybody about it. All it did was bring shame. All it did was bring guilt. All it did was a, cause you to be addicted, cause you to be enslaved to it, cause you to continue on in a pattern of living that you didn't want to live. It led you down a path where you were hardened from God, you were hardened from your relationships, you didn't know why, but now it's hard for you to raise your hands in church. And listen to me, friends, it doesn't mean that you necessarily had to have sinned. Listen, this is important. It doesn't mean that in the beginning you had to be the one to sin. Sometimes this happens because someone else sins against you first. Someone sins against you, your response is not forgiveness and applying the gospel, it's bitterness which the New Testament says when we fall into the root of bitterness, Satan is there because it's a foothold and he will make it a stronghold. So rather than applying the gospel and forgiving, you decide they wronged me, I'm gonna wrong them and it just marinates in your heart and in your mind and over and over and over and over and over again, you're thinking about it until now, you don't even know why, but you're not just trying to get them back, but you're just getting everybody back. You're not just gossiping about the person who sinned against you, you're gossiping about everybody. You don't even know how it happened. You're not just pushing away from that one person who sinned against you. You're pushing away from everybody, even your own spouse. You're isolating not just from people who you think might hurt you. You're isolating from every single person in your life, maybe even the God who loves you. And before you know it, you don't know why, but you just feel burdened. And Satan loves it. So instead, Jesus encourages us. He says, I, I eat of the food that you know not of, or come feast on me, taste and see that the Lord is good. Word, worship, communion, Sabbath, celebrations, covenantal intimacy, enjoyment, work. At the end of the day, the goal all, always is the way to supplant these affections for the world is not to just try to kill them with your own sword. It's to instead realize there's a supreme affection given to us by the Holy Spirit for Christ and if we can draw into our deepest affections and pursue Jesus, then that other lesser affection will be supplanted. And that's what Jesus encourages. And that's also what John encourages here. Lastly, point number three, and the world is passing away, verse 17, along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Remember, friends, the world is temporary. Being in Christ is eternal. Each and every one of us, under the sound of my voice, you'll make a choice every morning, maybe even moment by moment, will we live for the now, the temporary, or will we live for the eternal, with a vision for the eternal? 
the church, God's people, are not only meant to be about what they're against, they're about not just believing, but preaching, but displaying that God has a plan for us eternally. There's a good and true and beautiful vision that God has given of his life in the kingdom, not just the system of the world that is being offered to us. There's a whole other way that we can live that's actually, it's not subservient to this, new, this world, this kingdom, it's actually in opposition to it. And this vision that Jesus gives us is good, it's true, and it's beautiful. It's not just that we see something and we think, oh man, that, that doesn't lead to life, it leads to death. I wanna be against that and therefore I'm gonna pick at that. That's not, it. it's, no, 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 that's actually leading to death. But look at the opposite that leads to life that God's actually inviting us into. We should be equally as much about encouraging true, real, meaningful intimacy as we are against uh, combating against fornication, against uh, you know, sexual immorality and all these things. Why? Because this will supplant this. And just trying to kill this while your own power actually is like trying to put out a forest fire with a water gun. I don't care if it's a super soaker. That is futile. So I want to close with this thought. Um, I know this is an intense topic. I think there's two possibilities, plausibilities, if you're listening to me and you're like, man, I didn't realize just how influenced I can be by the world system around me, that my life uh, oftentimes, and, and if you're asking yourself, well, how do I know if I am influenced? Think about your decision-making. Think about the time, the time that is spent. Uh, time, talents, treasures is a really good way to think through how you're, how you're living and who you're living for. Where do you spend your time? Where do you spend your treasures? Where do you spend your talents? Where do you utilize your talents? It doesn't mean that you're not in the world at all using those things for, uh, in the world at all. It means when you use them in the world, is it to the glory of God for the redemption of people or is it ultimately engaging in and indulging in what's being offered? And that's a weird line, isn't it? But if you find yourself saying, man, I feel like that's having more of an effect on me than I could ever imagine. There's two options and I have to, as a pastor, be honest about both. Option one is if you were to get down to the rock bottom of your desires, I'm not talking about the surface level desires that probably want to bite on the bait that's offered regularly because the truth is every single one of us have those uh, knee-jerk intentions, indulgences. I'm talking about when you get down to the rock bottom of your heart, do you find yourself saying, what I want most of all is to honor Christ, to love God, to love my neighbor, to love my spouse, to respect people, to care about my kids, to invest in their lives, to make these things work, to forgive people, not to live in bitterness, not to gossip, not to walk in malice, not to be hateful, not to be spiteful. My, my rock bottom of my heart is to do good, to love and to care and to live my life according to who I know Jesus is and what he's done for me. Then I would say to you, you're a Christian and perhaps you've just been under attack and you need to recognize what's been happening. And maybe you're just succumbing a little bit to what John's talking about here. Now, on the flip side, if you get down to the rock bottom and you say, you know what? What I want most of all is to do what I want. I hate it when you preach sermons like this because ultimately it just makes me mad. Ultimately it makes me frustrated because I just feel chained down to the junk you telling me God wants me to do. It frustrates me because I, I wanna do what I wanna do and I want people to leave me alone about it. I want my spouse to leave me alone. I want my wife to quit telling me that I need to watch the kids. I want my wife to let me do what I wanna do. Then I just wanna tell you that maybe you're not a Christian. And I lovingly tell you that because the enemy would love for you to convince yourself that you are and you never really know Jesus who loves you. 
Because at the rock bottom of the Christian's desires is a new desire that Christ placed there himself. And he did it upon faith. And I know this because just like we have the Garden of Eden where our first parents made a mistake, we have made a sinful mistake. We have also the story of Jesus as the gospels start. Jesus enters into a time and a period of his life called the wilderness. The spirit leads Jesus out into the wilderness and for 40 days, Jesus doesn't eat food. He lowers himself and weakens himself to a place that most of us have never experienced. I would say all of us, but I don't know. Maybe one of you have fasted for 40 days in the middle of the desert. Probably not, but I'm leaving room, okay? I know there's always one. It's like, you don't know me, all right? I'm sorry. He weakens himself physically to a place that no one's ever been physically weakened to. And then it says that Satan shows up. And this is not... Hey, you know, he's had a rough day, gets tempted by his own flesh. This is not he gets tempted by some, you know, minion demon that shows up and starts whispering. No, Satan himself shows up and begins to talk to Jesus. And the first thing that he does is say, you look hungry. Why don't you turn the stones into bread? We know you can. Lust of the flesh. Jesus responds, says, no man lives by bread alone, but every mouth that proceeds, every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, no, I won't do it. So Satan unmoved, unfazed, it's okay, takes him up onto the top of the world, the pinnacle of the world, shows him all the kingdoms of the earth, the glitz, the glam. I think there's, a, there's an ambition and pride in this. There's also, though, the lust of the eyes. Show him with his eyes what he could have. And here's what Satan's really offering. You could have all this without the cross. You can have the crown. Why not? Jesus responds with the word again and says no. And then finally, Satan takes him to the temple, the center of religious thought, religious experience of the day. This is the place where God's spirit was, was said it would dwell in the temple, right? With the temple mount. He stands up at the top of it, says, why don't you throw yourself down? You know the angels of the Lord will catch you and everyone will know who you are and you won't have to prove it to them anymore. You won't have to do the cross. Everybody will see that you're the son of God. They'll praise you. They'll worship you. They'll sing to you. Do it. It even says in the scriptures that he won't let your foot dash against a stone. He perverts the word. Jesus says, no. Away with you, Satan, for you should worship God alone. And Satan, the scripture actually says he leaves until a more opportune time. Okay, what is a more opportune time than that? Jesus, our victor, Jesus, our king, did what we could not in the midst of the desert. When we were in a garden that was plush and and replete with all of God's resources, we couldn't obey. And Jesus, when he is in the desert where there's none of that, he obeys He walks faithful. He does what we can't do. This is why when Jesus says, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, what? I've overcome the world. In Christ, we can overcome this because Christ already has overcome it. But that's not the end of the story, right? What do we also get? The Garden of Gethsemane. Starts in the Garden of Eden. It ends in the Garden of Gethsemane. One of my favorite depictions of this is uh, Passion of the Christ. You know, Mel Gibson directs this movie and it starts off with Jesus in the garden, right? And what do you see? There's this snake slithering around him. And we know that in the Bible, it says Jesus is sweating great drops of blood. He has great anxiety because now it's actually the moment of the cross is coming. He's about to be falsely accused. He's about to be beaten beyond recognition. He's about to be mistreated. He's about, he's about to go through the, the deepest, darkest sorrow any human being has ever gone through by drinking the cup of God's wrath dry on our behalf. And he knows it. This is the opportune moment. Satan returns, right? We know that Satan returns because it says the angels have to come ministering to strengthen him. 
that God's angels, not the fallen angels, Satan, God's angels have to come and minister, strengthening the human being, Christ Jesus, as he withstands. And Jesus prays this single prayer. It's the single prayer that we find great hope in our constant battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. He says this, if this cup can pass from me, please let it pass. But nevertheless, your will, not my will, be done. And then in the movie, what I love is, is he stands up and he stomps the head of the snake that's slithering around him, which is a hearkening back to Genesis 3, verse 14, where God promised he would kill the serpent and it would only bruise the heel of his son. And Jesus walks to the cross. Friends, John tells us here, and I want to encourage you this morning, how do we combat the worldly system that we live in that is regularly looking to derail us, regularly looking to displace God from our lives and truth, the answer is abiding in the Father's love for you. The Father's love combats any love that the world could offer. The Father's love for you is found in Christ, your victory, who's defeated death, hell, and the grave. He's defeated the flesh, the world, and Satan himself. The Father loves you. And if you ever wonder, how do I know that God loves me? You can look to the cross to see just how much. You're loved by God, friends. And every other substitute is really just the enemy who hates you so much that he wants to steal, kill, and destroy any joy the Father could give. And so I wanna encourage you this morning, if you're a Christian and that's been your experience, the way you combat that is flinging yourself at the foot of a loving Father because he's a welcoming God who welcomes us back. If you're not a Christian this morning, I wanna encourage you, Jesus calls out to you today, today's the day of salvation. Trust Jesus. Trust Jesus. If you'll stand to your feet, I'll pray for us. Father, who's sufficient for these things? That's how it feels, Lord. It's just, I know that there's so many under the sound of my voice that he's just wrestling. The enemy's acutely aware of it as well. The flesh is just only as powerful now as Christians as we allow it to be. And so forgive us, God, when we give the flesh so many gratifying footholds and the enemy climbs right in. I, I ask Holy Spirit for freedom in, in the hearts of believers in this room. And I ask for freedom for the person who's not sure they're a Christian or sure they're not a Christian. Oh God, would you bring them to yourself now that they might find real freedom in the man, Jesus Christ, the God man, in you, Jesus. God, would you relieve us from the anxieties? And most of all, Lord, when we go out into the world today, help us to have a vision of life that clearly can perceive all of the different sermons that are being preached at us every single day that ultimately don't care about you and don't think much of us. Help us to see them for what they are and throw our lives back onto you, God. Your truth is forever. Your love for us is sustaining forever. God, do what only you can do in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.